0: Thank you all for tuning in today, and thanks for taking the time to join the show. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast, find us on your favorite podcast listening platform, or on YouTube at the Cyber Hub Podcast YouTube channel, where you can find all of our episodes, short, long, of all sizes and kinds. I've got a very special guest today on the show. If you're a lifelong listener of this podcast, meaning over 150 episodes that we've done at CISO Talk... You know, Mr. Patrick Gall, he's the executive director of the National Technology Security Coalition. He's a dear, dear friend of mine, someone who I definitely admire his work uh, because he's trying to get the voice of the CISO heard on the federal government level. He's got a board that represents approximately 90 Fortune 100 CISOs that support his efforts on the Hill. And he's a champion for all of us that are security practitioners. So without further ado, let's go bring Pat into the show. But one last thing. I will be in Israel for April live podcast April 16th over at Intel Ignite with our friends at Intel and so many others. So you can go check that out at CyberHubPodcast.com. Make sure to get that there. Without further ado, let's start the show, CyberHubPodcast.com. And it's Ciso Talk Time. Let's go, y'all. From the CyberHub Bunker in studio, you're listening to the CISO Talk Podcast. No sales, no bullshit, just straight talk. Straight talk. And now for your host and CISO, James Azar. Mr. Patrick Gall, welcome to the show again. Hello, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. You're no stranger to the show.
1: I am not, but it's been far too long.
0: I, th- I think it's been, it's been a few years since I've had you on because I took, I took a year off from the show in 2022. And, uh, and, 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 you know, with a new baby at home, I decided that I was going to do just one show instead of three,
1: uh, you know, Is that per day or per uh, week. You know,
0: I do one show five times a day and I do another two other shows that are each, you know, once a week. So kind of decided to take some time off. It's now back and this show's exciting and I'm glad to have you with us for our audience. who may not be familiar with the NTSC, And and I think you heard my introduction. Is there anything I missed that they should know about the the NTSC? Let me just
1: one small correction. We have 53 chief information security officers on our board, but we have about 90 senior technology security executives associated with the uh, um, coalition. Some of them serve on our advisory committee, some serve on our policy committee, and some are just special advisors but 53 CISOs, uh, but Fortune 1000 companies from across the nation, all big names.
0: That's, um, I stand corrected. I remember seeing 90 somewhere and, and it's probably 90 senior executives and not CISOs, but uh, the NTSC has been a, a force to reckon with as you guys fight for the voice of the CISO. Uh, Pat, I'll kind of kick this off to you. Um, you guys just spent a lot of time. You had your uh, policy meeting in DC with some of our elected representatives, I think a lot of people who tune into the show are always wondering what's you know, the mix match of, of, of government regulation around security and, and kind of their view of cyber to the realities of what we encounter in the trenches daily. You want to give our, our audience a bit of an update on
1: that? Sure. I mean, this is actually a very exciting time. Um, we had the national cybersecurity strategy drop on March 2nd. I happened to be in Washington in the morning, it dropped and had a number on the Hill that day. Um, actually got my copy at 5.30 in the morning. So I uh, had three hours to read it before I went up on the Hill to meet with some of the other folks in you know, Homeland Security. So I could ask them some questions about it. Um, so there's a lot of interest in terms of you know, the pillars, there's five pillars, uh, critical infrastructure, Security is certainly um, an important one, pillar one. And, you know, um, that'll be the one that'll be most, you know, uh, overseen by uh, the cybersecurity infrastructure security agency. So CISA. Um, Pillar two is get after the threat actors. Pillar three is shape market forces to drive security and resilience, which is really about pushing uh, the responsibility for you know, security back into the folks that create software, who manufacture hardware. That's gonna be an interesting one to, um, to regulate and create. Uh, pillar four is invest in a resilient future and uh, workforce development is in that pillar. And that's something that the NTSC has certainly been focused on for quite a while. I think it's a problem that we've admired for the last decade. Uh, We're coming to a critical point where over 50% of our cyber workforce, James, are baby boomers in Generation X. So we're headed for a cliff. And, um, you know, we need a pipeline of young people. But the gap for most companies today is in the seven to nine year experience level. So we've got to figure out a way to keep the young people interested because, you know, for every young person looking for a job just out of university, there's about five jobs. Are five people for every job. But if you go up the stack, there's only about 0.5 people for every job. So there's a lot of stuff we have to unpack there and work through. And uh, that's going to be handled by the Office of the National Cyber Director. And I learned last week that there's actually a draft uh, circulating among the federal agencies on a plan to address uh, workforce. And hopefully the private sector folks like myself will see that plan soon. And then last pillar five is global partnership. So there's a lot to unpack in that 35-page document. And we spent a lot of time last week in our legislative day talking about it. We had Val Coldfield, who's the chief strategy officer for CISA, spent about 45 minutes with us. Uh, We had Nick Learson, who's the assistant deputy director within the office of the national cyber director responsible for cybersecurity and programs. And he came in and kind of gave us the perspective from, you know, ONCD. Um, so a lot of work there. Uh, meanwhile, there's a ton of stuff going on with privacy. Uh, Iowa passed, uh, uh, well, the legislator, legislative body passed, the House passed a uh, privacy bill. I think the vote was 43 to nothing. And uh, that had already been passed by the Senate. So that goes back to the Senate for some procedural issues. Then it'll go to the governor, get signed, and that'll be the sixth state that has a privacy bill. Um, we're headed down the same path. We have a data breach notification, James. We're, we're looking at the possibility of having 50 plus privacy bills, which I know, you know, between the chief privacy officers, the chief information security officers, and the chief risk and compliance officers, they're all just thrilled with that concept and that idea. Um, meanwhile, uh, you know, we've got the uh, systems working on the data rulemaking part of um, the um, cyber incident reporting for critical infrastructure act. Uh, Director Eastley was on the Hill yesterday meeting with the appropriators. There's a lot of money in that bill, $3 billion in going towards this in the budget. 98 million of that is earmarked just for managing the amount of information that CISA expects to get under this incident reporting bill. And there's a ton of stuff they're going to have to be able to do to process that information, discern the intelligence in that information, connect the dots and send it back out to the private sector in near real time. Um, You know, but that's not happening today unless you're in the JCDC. If you're in the JCDC, you're getting some pretty good information. But as we learned last week, if you're not in the JCDC, cyber uh, incident or cyber threat intelligence sharing has not, advanced dramatically in the last several years. In fact, we for had a- audience,
0: Real quick, Pat, for audience members who may not know what the JCDC is, what, what is that?
1: It's the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. And it's an organization that Jen Easterly, Director Easterly, put together in response to SolarWinds and Log4J. And it was initially intended to be, I think, um, you know, like a rapid incident reporting on a national level. It has um, evolved into something a lot more dramatic, focused on incident reporting. A lot of companies like CrowdStrike and Microsoft and Palo Alto collaborating and sharing information, but you have to be on the inside as a private sector company to get that information right now. Um, I think Director Easley's idea is to to leverage that relationship and and eventually push that out to more companies. But uh, right now... You know we did a session last week and and it was uh you remember when uh, ronald reagan was debating um i uh, can't remember who it was but he you know he asked uh i think it was jimmy carter he said uh, are we better off than we were four years ago and jimmy carter had to say no so so when you know cyber threat intelligence are we better off than we were you know four years ago and we're not and we've been doing this for seven years and it's constantly been a, a real problem. Um, so th- that, that's gonna go through rulemaking. Uh, Director Easley expects to have the proposed rules out by March of next year. That will go through a commentary period. And then the idea was the implementation will happen in September of 2025. So we're a long ways away from having that bill be you our, know,
0: our, our adversaries don't wait this long to come after us. Right. They're, they're, they're after us every single day. Is, is there, is there any hope in, in, in sight to see government maybe grease their wheels, maybe some WD 40 to get it to move a bit faster?
1: Well, <laughs> you know, we're in an interesting political environment, yes, you know, every time I go on the Hill and no matter which side of the aisle I talk to, uh, when we talk about cybersecurity, everybody says we're bipartisan, we're bipartisan. And, um, but, you know, uh, you know, let's see if they walk the talk when it comes time to start appropriating money, investing in, in uh, the, the things we need to invest in, especially workforce. Um, and, uh, you know, that ought to be a bipartisan issue, but, um, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen in this session. And then we're going to be entering a presidential race next year. And a lot of things aren't going to get done. So I don't, for example, the cybersecurity um, strategy, I don't see a lot of that getting implemented in the next 18 months. Uh, So so is this
0: document even relevant, right? Because one of the things I was reading, I was reading something in the Washington Post um, earlier this week. I think it was in the the Washington Post uh, 202, kind of their cyber newsletter. And, and they were talking about um, the, the desire to create a U.S. cyber force. That's correct. The desire to create, there's calls to, there was an open letter penned by multiple, you know, five, four-star generals and, and, and a lot of uh, uh, folks over at the Pentagon saying it's time to unify all of the DoD cyber efforts under one and established a seventh branch of the military called U.S. Cyber Force. And. There's very little appetite. Like Space Force, you and I, were we, we witnessed the establishment of Space Force very, very quickly because it had presidential support. Here they're saying that there isn't some. Do you think Congress could push potentially a seventh branch? Do you think a U.S. cyber force is actually good for? Well,
1: for I read the article and I, I wonder how it bounces against U.S. Cyber Command, which is a joint group. So it's of- kind of
0: like organizing Cyber Command, but Cyber Command rather than it being almost – Kind of like an army/slash NSA type of tool, it'd rather be a US cyber force. And then the the concept behind that is also um, recruiting soldiers for cyber force. So you enter the seventh branch of government. Where if you're in cyber, you you're you're, you know, you and I are military vets, so we went through PT requirements. But if you're in cyber force, you may not need the same type of PT requirements that you would if you enlisted in the army and wanted to become cyber command. There's no difference whether you want it to be a cyber officer in the military a signet uh there's no pt difference between that and let's say an 11 bravo you've got to have the same physical condition
1: yeah no i don't i don't see any appetite for that and right now all of the armed forces are struggling to recruit they're all missing their recruiting goals on a quarterly basis and whether you're offering them positions in cyber or you know 0311 grunts. Uh, they're just not signing up right now. Kids aren't going into the military, and um, so now I personally I don't see an appetite for that. I I think um, they're still trying to figure out you know balances between you know federal agencies and some of the regulations they're creating around things. And um, you know my my goal would be to have a national cyber scholarship or service program, James. And Mm -hmm. I've been promoting this for two years in Congress. And for the first time, I'm starting to get some some feedback from people that say, that's an interesting idea. Tell me more about it. We have Cyber Corps for Service, which is an amazing program. It's graduated 4,000 students in 20 years. Um, It's underfunded. There's only about 118, 120 colleges, maybe seven community colleges involved in that. Um, Staying on workforce for a second. Um, there's a lot of, you know, what Microsoft is doing with the community colleges is great. Right. There's some wonderful things going on, which H- HBCUs, um, but they're all disparate efforts. And so what right. we need, and what the national cyber security strategy document called for, it said, we need a national strategy around fixing the cyber workforce problem. For the past three years, I've been pounding on the doors in Congress saying, we need two things. We need a national strategy and we know more diversity in the workforce. You know, the 24% are women. You go into minorities, that drops dramatically. I think 15 uh, Fortune 1000 CISOs are women. It, you know, it, it's um, you know, it's a big problem. So I, I don't know that, um, you know, I, I don't think it's a bad idea. I just don't know that there's an appetite in Congress given the current um you know budget discussions and debt ceiling discussions and oversight and uh you know over the fact that uh sis is getting three million or 30 billion dollars you know there's a lot going to be a lot of oversight from the house on that money and like i said Jen Easterly was with the appropriators yesterday got asked a lot of hard questions about where that money's going um because it is a lot of money and they want to make sure that the taxpayers getting their bang for the buck
0: you know i wish to do the same with ukraine money um because I'm, I'm less concerned about how jen easterly spends my tax dollars uh
1: than i am with ukraine that's that's i'm not sure i want to go there but uh, we're well, not going well. there and that's that's a
0: personal james opinion that's my personal opinion at all yeah. uh, you know seeing her being grilled for it um uh, a, a bit upsets me because she should be focused on strategy i mean not saying she shouldn't be answering to appropriation right but jen's been a i thought a unifier and, and one of the the uh better leaders that we've had on the CISA side granted we've only had about less than a handful since its well, establishment
1: if you think of NPP, MPD MPPD the National Protections and Programs Directorate which was the predecessor to uh, CISA which right. Chris Krebs took over and, and initially you know evolved into CISA and then um, you know he had his situation with President Trump and you know, he, he ended up leaving and then Jen came in and she, she's done an amazing job. Um, you know, we talk a lot about the public-private partnership. Um, I, I'm not sure that that's um, as um, much of a reality as people think. And we talk a lot about, um, you know, other terms, but when we think about incident reporting, cyber incident reporting today, the challenge is that, you know, you got to have trust to start out with before you can have collaboration, and then collaboration leads to, you know, beneficial actions. Um, I'm not sure the trust exists today. Most corporations, you know, not necessarily willing to open the kimono and share everything that's going on. Even if the CISO thinks, you know, I got to share this, um, he's he or she still has to go through legal and, um, you know, there, there's a lot of challenges to getting to the point where we are truly exchanging information the way we need to. So, um, you know, it, just think about incident reporting for a second. You've got the, the, the bill that says pushing through rulemaking. Meanwhile, the SEC is going to come out, I think it's April 23rd, 25th, is going to come out with their proposed rule. Correct. And uh, right now, according to everything I'm hearing, incident reporting is still in there and it doesn't align with this. And now I've talked to Admiral Montgomery, former executive director of Cyberspace Larum Commission. I know he, he's encouraging uh, the SEC to, to remove the incident reporting piece, and to resonate on CISA. Let CISA be the centralized, you know, point of view. And if we end up with 72 hours or 24 hours, you know, we still have to define, you know, what is an event? What is an incident? What is material, James? Under the SEC, what is material? And if you go and read, if I I think this is, you can fact check me on this. I think it has to do with something like 20 plus percent of, pre-tax revenue for it to be material. And if that's true, then we've never actually had a material breach, Target, Equifax, none of those were material. So there, there's a lot of definitions that need to be refined. Um, and then we all understand what an incident is and when you have to report it and how much you have to report. But the idea is you have to report, you know, tons of information within 24 hours under the SEC rule, or three hours in India, um, it's just insane. I mean, you know, the forensics haven't even begun. Um, and, um, so, and so you got the SEC. The FCC is also looking at incident reporting, and so is the FTC. So you have all of these independent federal agencies who have the ability to create their own regulations. So where is the harmonization going to come in? And in the national strategy, they talk about harmonization. They talk about, I forget the office, cyber, some new group that's going to set up that's going to be pushing for harmonization. And Jen talked about that yesterday as well. Um, But we can't have multiple incident reporting bills and and regulations. That would be insanity and um, would just drive the private sector nuts. So uh, hopefully they'll get all of that harmonized. And um, meanwhile, and that, that's the federal level. We, we haven't even talked about the fact that we have 50 states plus four territories with their own cyber incident notification requirements. So if you have a breach, you have to notif- you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a multinational corporation, you're all over the country, you have a breach, you have to deal with the AGs in every one of those states. And while a lot of the bills are similar, there are nuances that you have to be aware of, and that requires compliance. And compliance requires money, and um, it takes resources away that could be focused on cybersecurity. And you know, we, this whole regulatory—you know—can you regulate your a company into security? I don't think so.
0: I, I, I you know, I've, I haven't seen one government regulation globally to stop a cybersecurity breach incident event or otherwise
1: are we going to regulate I, I mean this is an off-the-cuff comment are we going to regulate ourselves into stopping school shootings
0: yeah you're yeah i mean it's it.
1: you know i mean I, again
0: it, i i don't I, have I, to
1: go there but no
0: I, I agree with you i think you know th- there's there's an effort um there there's an effort that that i think is 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 um there's an effort being done to to try and I want to say um, add more regulation because we we all think that regulation solves problems. Um, but but regulation is oversight, and and you know one of my challenges. I did a thirty minute podcast alone, kind of with my take on the national uh, cybersecurity strategy after it dropped, and and you know I spent I think it was. 20 minutes on the fact that we're talking about more regulation and rather than talking about the private public collaborative and there's other countries in the world where you see that being very very the, the private public partnership being very very effective um uk is one of them right israel's another um you know um i, I believe germany is, is is up there as well switzerland's up there there's there's countries out there that have shown the private public model to be better than regulation. Right. And there's a need for that. You said one key word there, which is trust. And I can tell you that I trust my federal partners. I don't have to agree with the agency as a whole to trust the people that support me in doing my role effectively. Right. Like my partners at the FBI or Secret Service or, or, or CISA. They're not political to me, they're, they're my partners, they're, they're, they represent something that's supposed to be helpful. And I think that's something Jen was able to kind of get across her, her team. And, and I know there's, you know, depending on what paper you read or what website you look at, you hear a lot of stuff around the FBI, but every person I've ever met in the FBI and the cybersecurity team has been just been phenomenal in their support of everything we try to do as practitioners.
1: You know, Director Easterly has been um, criticized recently in the past, uh, recent past for um, being a rock star at being at all of these, you know, DEF CON, Black Hat, RSA, the place, Aspen, you know. um, But you think back seven years ago, you know, MPPD, before Chris Krebs got in there, you know they never collaborated. They never interacted with the private sector. And now Jen's got all these regional offices, you know, building relationships with, with, um, you know, the, the local community being a resource to the local community. We have one here in Atlanta, you know, I, have had met with some folks. We, we've tried to bring those folks into our regional roundtables, so they can talk about the resources they have and what they can do to help, um, it and the area. amount
0: of free tools that CISA drops, the amount of free tools that your cyber team is able to use is magnificent.
1: It is. They need to do a little work around the language. Um, and we had this conversation last week with Val Cofield, uh, the chief strategy officer there. Um, it's good stuff, but if you're a small business, most of these folks don't know what red team, blue team is. So um. They've got to simplify the language, dumb it down a bit, so it speaks more directly to the um, to the small business. But these regional offices, you know, yes, they build relationships with multinational corporations, transnational corporations. But where they really are a- a value added is, you know, the small businesses are, are able to come in and 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 get some, ha- you know, some. In you know direct conversations and learn a bit more about how they can secure themselves, because right now small businesses are getting killed. They are resource poor and target rich, and um, you know and you know small hospitals, regional hospitals are getting killed. Healthcare is getting murdered. Water authorities are you know in desperate need of of you know more support. Um, So you know most. You know, I don't think J.P. Morgan Chase uh, is getting a lot of interaction with the regional office. I don't know that they need it, but um, you know, the local regional hospital does because they don't have the resources. They just they don't have the money to invest in cybersecurity. And um, and well, you know, I told you about a study recently right. that was done by ESI Thought Lab and going back to regulation, the two most regulated industries, I think in the United States are probably healthcare and financial, two of the most, right? And yet this study determined that um, in fact, they don't rank very high against some of the unregulated agencies like tech, automotive manufacturing, which you traditionally wouldn't think were very secure, but across all of the cybersecurity elements that the ESI Thought Lab analyzed, um financial services only rated one number one in one area and that was the plan to invest more money and health care fell well down so um you know uh th- there's uh you know, it goes back to regulation um you know these are heavily regulated industries HIPAA has been around a long time so uh can we spend a few minutes talking about privacy yes please absolutely so um, six states have passed privacy legislation so far. California, which is really their CCPA 2.0, and it's called the California Privacy Rights Act. That went into effect on first of January. And uh, what else? Virginia went into effect the first of January. Connecticut and um, Colorado go into effect the seventh the first of July. And then Utah goes into effect December of this year. So those were the first five states. And then Iowa, once the bill gets finalized, we'll know when it's going to go into effect. But I would think later this year. Um, meanwhile, last year, um, the subcommittee on consumer protection and commerce within the House Committee on Homeland Security um Produ- or the uh, the House Committee on Energy and Commerce produced the ADPPA, the American Data Privacy and Communication and Protection Act, American Data Privacy and Protection Act, and um, that passed out of the subcommittee. I think the vote was fifty-three to two, extremely bipartisan bill, and uh, but it never got to the House floor. Um, I think two reasons: Speaker Pelosi is from California. And, uh, you know, the California caucus is pretty strong in the House on the Democratic side. And uh, CCPA and this new bill, which was due to come out, um, there's just no appetite to to put it forward. And then the other side of that was Senator Cantwell, who's the chair of the Senate Committee on Energy and Commerce, said that uh, she would, you know, she would never put it on the floor in the Senate. And she had two primary objections. Uh, she didn't feel the private right to action went far enough. And sorry. <laughs> and she, uh, she felt like it didn't go far enough to regulate data brokers. Both valid points, I think. But, you know, this is where compromise comes in. This bill passed the subcommittee 53 to 2, if I remember correctly. And um, while it's not perfect, it's the closest thing we've seen to a federal privacy legislation that actually works um, in, you know, ever. And uh, so we met with the, um, the chief counsel for the, uh, on the Republican side for the subcommittee and um, to talk about ADPPA. And I think you'll see that reemerge. And um, in fact, the NTS. Is,
0: is there an appetite for it in this session or, or, or this year to, to bring it to the floor? And, and, and I, if I, so think, should...
1: I think sure. there's an appetite for a federal privacy legislation. I think everybody recognizes that it's insanity to go down the same path we went down with data breach. The challenge is going to be, okay, I think it'll get on the House floor. I think it could pass the House. Because it's now controlled by the Republicans. Right. And um, Kevin
0: McCarthy is still from California, though.
1: Right. And, um, you know, (laughs) that's that's going to be a challenge. But let's say we we get we get the compromises we need on private right to action. Um, Interestingly enough, CCPA doesn't have private right to action or privacy, uh, the California Privacy Rights Act. But this bill did have private right to action. Now, it wouldn't kick in until two years after the bill went into effect. And there were a lot of restrictions around it. So it wasn't perfect, but it was in there. Um, And it didn't go far enough to to regulate data brokers, especially in this truly political climate with, with abortion laws popping up and law enforcement wanting to get access to health records and you know, I don't think anybody wants that to happen, but, um, that aside, if we get it through the house, you know, then, then, you know, it's going to have the same barrier at the Senate and that's Senator Cantwell. So I don't know what it's going to take to get Senator Cantwell to accept it, but we're going to be working hard in partnership with our, you know, the members of Congress we have been working with. Um, we had Congressman Swalwell, um, who is the,
0: Congressman from California, formerly of the House Intelligence Committee. Formerly. Yeah. Has been kept um, in that
1: committee. But he's also, um, he's a ranking member on the Subcommittee on Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Protection. And we had him in last week and we talked to him about this. And, you know, his point was, look, um, I understand why industry wants a federal mandate. I understand the angst that all of these bills are going to create. And, you know, there's a cascading effect. You know, you've got to be compliant. Compliant is costly. I mean, it's just, I talked to one CISO, Global CISO, at a very large bank and they spend $2 million a year just on staying compliant with all of the regulations that they have to be compliant with. And, you know, while compliant firms get hacked a whole lot less than non-compliant firms, The reality is compliance doesn't equal security. And we've talked about that issue before. Um, So, you know, his point was, we think California is the model and I don't know, maybe what do we do? We, you know, a lot of companies are just resonating on GPR or GPD.
0: um, GDPR.
1: Yeah, GDPR, Global Data Protection.
0: Yeah, the European Data Protection Act. Yeah, yeah, Yeah,
1: regulation and uh, GDPR. Uh, a lot of transnational companies, that's that's their foundation. Well, because that was
0: the first one that came through, right? GDPR was the first one to come through the door. I recall five years ago, you know, I started the podcast around the time GDPR was getting enforced. If my One of my first episodes, you know, I, I remember I had uh, a guest on the show and we talked about, you know, how useless GDPR really is to prevent data breaches. Um, and, <laughs> And how much cost it added to 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 companies to comply with it, and 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 increase the cost of doing business, obviously for for a lot of them. Um, and so you know, GDPR, while it's it's a style, it's become fairly standard. It's I don't, I don't think it's the right solution for America. I think it's Americans are very different from Europeans. You and I know this, uh, having spent time in, on 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 the other side of the pond. We, we very much well know that that. Privacy there is very different from privacy here. It's, it's, ask an American what privacy is, he's going to give you something completely different. Ask a European what privacy is, and it depends which European you're asking. I mean, so yeah, it's uh,
1: the other thing about ADPPA, which we're, we're uncomfortable with, is the, um, the section in it in the bill where uh, they um, invest a significant amount of money and additional lawyers into the FTC. Um,
0: we need less lawyers in the ftc we need less people in the federal government period but that's that's um you know i I think you know the work the ntsc is doing on the hill is to get this across so that people can can at least at least if it goes to the floor and gets voted whether it gets passed or not at, at least we know where where our areas of opportunities are, right? If it fails to pass the Senate for whatever reason, because it doesn't regulate data brokers enough, because it calls for more FTC lawyers, right? And, and those are, at least we know where to go back and, and have the sponsors of the bill go back and make some adjustments, take it through a subcommittee and get it back on the floor. But it'd be disastrous if we went through 50 privacy bills in this country.
1: It would. And look, it didn't come out of that subcommittee last year without a lot of compromise. And you and I have talked about the lack of compromise, the lack of sitting down and finding out where we agree and working on those issues that we agree on. We don't have to agree on everything. And we're never going to agree on everything. and i'm I'm this collective we, right? Uh, Republicans, Democrats, independents, we're never going to agree on everything. But, you know, th- we ought to be able to find those nuggets from the ground yeah. and advance, advance things. And workforce development, you know, addressing the cyber workforce challenge is something we all ought to agree on because China's not got a problem with workforce. North Korea doesn't. Russia doesn't. They don't have a problem with getting people. You've named workforce.
0: three communist nations where their people have no rights. So. <laughs>
1: Well, um, that's, that's true, but that's the reality. I, right I mean, now. North
0: Dakota just passed the first cybersecurity bill, requiring cybersecurity education in K through 12 schools. Which t- the, who did that? The state of North Dakota. So, North Dakota. 17 and a half people and about 30 buffaloes and 100 eagles can now go study cybersecurity. It took them eight years to pass this bill.
1: There are pockets, years. There are pockets of enlightenment. I call it. You know, uh, <clears throat> when Georgia elected this, to, that you can take a coding class, um, or you know, a class of that nature, a programming class, coding class, and that will substitute for a foreign language credit uh, in high school. That's a good move forward. They're doing some amazing things in Texas, especially around Austin and school districts. Um, you know, we've got some high schools up around Augusta that have, you know, four-year cyber high school curriculums and they're doing the same thing in Texas. And that's what we need. Yeah, but we need that across the entire
0: nation. We need K through the the way we solve our, our workforce development, the way we solve our lack of recruiting in the military, the way we solve a lot of the challenges we encounter today is by really going to the schools and getting people interested in it early on. Right. You get a, you know, uh, I've got a ton of books around quantum computing, that are toddler books for my son, and around mechanics and engineering. Why? Because that's what I want him to be interested in, right? So that's the toys we buy, that's the books we read, that's the stuff we go into. Because at a very young age, I can mold his mind to go towards the, that type of work, um, and that type of uh, uh, develop that passion. Because no one knows what they're really born to do. At eighteen, none of us know what we want to be either. So you know, going to college for four years and trying to figure that out is just a challenge all of within itself. And it's, it's, it's unnecessary pressure on a lot of people at the age of 18. Cause I yeah. guarantee you, you, when you and I were enlisted at 18 and someone said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And you're like, I do
1: not I grow up. I don't,
0: well, I don't know.
1: I, I was 17 and uh,
0: <laughs> I was 17 when I enlisted.
1: Yeah. yeah. When I went in the Marine Corps and um, you know, um, when I got to Paris Island, it didn't matter what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. They told me right. what to be and do and for the next 9 years that worked out well for me but um, you know I was one of those kids who needed that structure and discipline in order to mature and uh, not all kids need that but for some kids it's it's a pretty good thing um, and and there's some real you know opportunity in in the military for you know getting into a cyber curriculum and you know kids should be looking at that if they don't know what they want to do Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we've talked about recently. Um, I talked about the cyber threat intelligence. I talked about privacy. Um, You know, the other thing that's going to come out, and we can touch on this just quickly when it comes, the SEC rule comes out, you know, there's a whole new subcommittee within the cyber, within the cybersecurity advisory committee, which is this committee of 35 executives that support director Easterly. We just named 14 more last week. Um, I think they originally set it up at 21, and then they just added the last 14 last week. And um, there's a subcommittee called uh, Corporate Cyber Responsibility, and headed up by Dave DeWalt. And that subcommittee is focused on trying to understand how you know we can make corporate boards more cyber aware help understand because the SEC rule is going to impose some pretty significant responsibility, fiduciary responsibility on corporate board members. And uh, they can't not going to be able to ignore cybersecurity going forward. They're going to have to be really interested in it. Um, but are they prepared to be interested in it? Um, one of my uh, national sponsors is a company called Proofpoint and their uh, global CISO um Global resident says so as a a woman by the name of Lucia Malika, just a brilliant uh, lady. And, um, you know, she spends a lot of time working with corporate boards. They have a whole program educating corporate boards. There's a lot of work to be done to get all of our corporate boards up to speed on this. And, um, you know, it's... um, it, it's an issue that I think, you know, it's, it's going to be really important in the next 18 months after the rule comes out. All right. I'm, I know we're almost at time. I'm going to put you on the hot seat. Can, can I say one last thing before we start? Yes, absolutely. I just wanted to note mention that today is national Vietnam veterans day. It and is. I just wanted to uh, say to all my brothers who served Semper Fi. Semper Fi indeed.
0: I'm going to now, Mr. Uh, Marine, I'm putting you on the Are you ready? Yep. All right. Um, buzzword you'd love to bury in our buzzword graveyard.
1: Hall of a nation. <laughs> I'm so tired of hearing it. It doesn't exist. It's never going to exist.
0: Okay. We'll take it. Um, what's the last song you listened to for coming on the show, Pat?
1: I've been listening to... You can see all my albums back here. I'm listening to... Linda Ronstadt's Greatest Hits. I was listening to it this morning.
0: I love it. What's the book you're reading right now? Or listening to if you're... I think I, you're a book reader rather than a, a I'm audience.
1: I'm reading Fixing American Cybersecurity. It's a book that was um, orchestrated by Larry Clinton. There's a lot of contributors to it, but Larry Clinton's the editor of the book. Mm-hmm. He's the um, president of the Internet Security Alliance. Yep. This is, um, in some some sense, a fairly controversial book and talking about regulation, a lot of proposals for change. I highly recommend anybody who's interested in the future of cybersecurity in America to read this book. I will be
0: ordering it off Amazon. It'll be my uh, book to read on my flight next week. So uh, love that. Mr. Patrick Gall, NTSC.org. Correct. That's the website.
1: NTSC.org or Patrick at NTSC.org.
0: If you're a CISO um, and you're interested in getting involved or at least learning more about the NTSC, you can reach out to Patrick. Uh, the NTSC is an amazing organization, a great collaboration for CISOs um, and, and a definite great opportunity to have your voice heard. Patrick, on behalf of myself, continued uh, I, I, and everyone on the show, thank you for coming on and, and continued success with the NTSC and everything you guys are doing. It's it's really valuable work for a lot of us in this James, in the industry. James, it's always
1: good to connect with you and looking forward to finding some time after you get back from Israel and catching up face to face.
0: I can't wait. Thanks y'all for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe to the latest and catch all the latest SISO talk podcast episodes. Season three is just about wrapped up here. We'll be coming back with season four in August of this year um, with some really, really awesome guests. I can't wait to share. So tune into that. Until then have a great rest of your day. And most importantly, y'all stay cyber safe. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues and get all the latest information at cyberhubpodcast.com.